0: It was the United Steelworkers that actually put up $10,000 at the urging of people in Webster who said, we're sick of this stuff already. We breathe it all the time because there was black smoke and thick smoke over the town all the time.
1: On November 1st, 1948, smog produced by the southwestern Pennsylvania steel industry poisoned the air in the Monongahela Valley town of Denora, killing more than 22 people and sickening thousands more. On today's show, Louise Malone, a Ph.D. candidate in the University of Georgia Department of History, explores the response of the U.S. Steel Corporation, employees, and Denora residents. And she explains how the United Steelworkers of America pushed for investigation and improved environmental and health and safety regulations following the disaster. The story comes to us from Tales from the Ruther Library, a podcast focusing on stories on labor history, Detroit, and Wayne State University. Also on today's show...
2: On this day in labor history, the year was 1897. Striking coal miners marched on a coal mine in Latimer, Pennsylvania. The year was 2012. That was the day the Chicago Teachers Union walked off the job for the first time in 25 years.
1: That's all coming up. On Labor History Today, I'm Chris Scarlock.
2: Here's the show. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1897. Striking coal miners marched on a coal mine in Latimer, Pennsylvania. Earlier that year, the miners had gone out on strike. Most of the miners were German or Eastern European immigrants. The Lehigh and Wilkes-Barre Coal Company had laid off workers, raised fees for homes and doctors, and forced longer hours on those who still worked. By August 16th, 2,000 workers had walked off the job in the mines. Most of the miners joined the United Mine Workers of America. The strike ended on August 23rd when the company agreed to the workers' demands, including a 10-cent-an-hour raise. However, when the raise went into effect on September 1st, only a few workers were given the raise. Two days later, the miners went back on strike. This time, they demanded a 15-cent-an-hour raise. A week later, between five and 10,000 miners were on strike. And on this day in labor history, about three to 400 miners marched to a mine in the town of Latimer. They carried before them a large American flag. In the lead-up to the march, Luzerne County deputies were openly heard bragging about how many miners they would kill. When the miners reached Latimer, Luzerne County Sheriff James Martin and the Coal and Iron Police deputies met the strikers at the mine and ordered them to disperse. 60 deputies, armed with Winchester rifles, hid behind a low rise along the route of the march. The deputies opened fire, killing 19 strikers in cold blood and wounding as many as 50. All of those killed were shot in the back. The state actually put the coal and iron police deputies on trial. But despite the overwhelming evidence that the workers were shot in the back, all were acquitted. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on the Twitters at Labor History in Two.
3: Hello and welcome to Tales from the Ruther Library, a podcast that is created in the Walter P. Ruther Library at Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan. I am Dan Galadner, your host. And alongside me is Troy Eller-English. Hi, Troy. Hey, Dan. On November 1st, 1948, the town of Donora in southwest Pennsylvania woke up to discover 22 people dead. And how did I find out about this? We talked to, to Louise Malone, who is a doctoral candidate studying environmental, industrial, and labor history at the University of Georgia and a recipient of the Sam Fishman Award for 2022. Louise is interested in what U.S. Steel knew about this disaster. And what did they do and not do? Hello, Louise. How are you doing? Hi, Dan. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for joining our podcast. I really do appreciate it. No, it's love to be here. I've never heard of this disaster, to tell you the truth. What was the lead up? What happened? Fill us in. So there was a zinc
0: works in in Denora, and of course, U.S. Steel absolutely dis- denied that the zinc works was largely responsible, but the zinc works was largely responsible. And a number of things that happened in this town, just a quick backup. So you had this these huge steel mills, and you had this zinc works that was galvanizing metal and producing sulfuric acid, which is a byproduct and also used in that process. And Denora is a valley town surrounded by hills. And this is an area subject to air inversions. So they get them all the time. And an air inversion is just this hot lid that holds down colder air closer to the ground, and frequently nothing moves. And in this air inversion, that lasted far longer than the others. It lasted five days. And so you had 22... The official record says 20. It was about 22 people, maybe more, die. And you had 6,000 of the then 13,000 residents get sick. Some of them very seriously sick. The official statement initially was, it's an act of God. It's just a weather event. I don't know. Why do we always blame God for the bad things that <laughs> we happen? We thank God and
3: we blame him for everything. <laughs> That's right.
0: And it was the United Steelworkers that actually put up $10,000 at the urging of people in Webster who said, we're sick of this stuff already. We breathe it all the time because there was black smoke and thick smoke over the town all the time. Vegetation was dead, literally in both towns. And so we want to test. We want to know what happened. So they ran a test in April of 1949. And there was a preliminary report out that I have seen that clearly says that there were amounts per million of these various toxic mess in proportions that were just way out of line. Some of them way out of line with what the Department of Labor was talking about for work environments even then. Thousands of degrees out of line for what OSHA say requires now.
3: God. So what happened with this report? Did it move anywhere with a federal investigation? Did U.S. Steel get involved somehow claiming or doing anything? What was the end result?
0: The end result was that the final report was quashed. It never appeared. Initially, the local public health people were not were doing the act of God thing. But what did happen was because this was a big story, Walter Winchell was talking about it. In fact, some of the people in Denora learned that their neighbors were dying from Walter Winchell. Initially, the three first two, three days, they thought not the usual stuff. And so then... USW goes ahead and puts up the $10,000, and nothing happens with that report, and it just goes away. But because it did create a big fuss, President Truman goes ahead and calls a 1950 conference on air pollution. And from that, there's a truly toothless 1955 Clean Air Act. Most of us think the first Clean Air Act was, you know, like 1970, but there was this 1955 and a 1963 Clean Air Act. But the, you know, that DeNora will say that um, they were the, that it was their town that created the Clean Air Act.
3: So put the blame back on the town, back on the locals, had no responsibility from the corporation to do anything. Right. Okay. Yeah, and, uh, absolutely. Did, they do, did U.S. Steel do anything afterwards to try to stem this tide of air pollution or anything like that?
0: They were forced to reduce production in the, uh, in the zinc works. Uh, so that production was slowly reduced, and nine years later, in 1957, that zinc works closed. Uh, what's really interesting is that I have a film, I, I love archivists, uh, from, well, the, <laughs> <laughs> from the from uh, the smog museum archivist Brian Chaltern of exactly what that zinc works process looked like for the workers inside. It's it's not the Denora film, but it's precisely the same works. But that was completely outmoded. It was something that had been built in 1916. But what's interesting to me about Denora seems to me to be the canary in the in the coal mine, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. The zinc works starts to go down in 1957. The big mill closes in 1963, the steel mill, and all that's left are just some uh, finishing mills that then close in nineteen sixty-seven, very early, and not the usual time in which we think of
3: deindustrialization. All right, so this is this is the warning shot then. I think so. In fact, basically this is what's showing that shows everybody should have been paying attention to, saying. Something seriously is going wrong here. The, the The steel mills are shutting down, and the land is junk. Did the Steelworkers Union do anything after their report, after they put that money in? Did, did they const- start lobbying or pushing more about environmental issues, and did other unions start picking up this, this trend?
0: You know, the steel workers, I and mean, what's really interesting about what's in the archives here is that the steel workers seem to have been working with UAW, and I did meet with a gentleman named Michael Wright, who is now a retired occupation and health safety guy for USW, and USW, too, started to move forward saying, we we don't want our workers or people to be living in this kind of environment. And the USW supported every single Clean Air Act that was put forward. And most people think that that's just not what happened, in the same way that they think that UAW was really not an active environmental union. And everything in the files here at uh, Wayne State at the Walter Ruther Library say something very, very different.
3: Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a, we see more and more research being done showing that unions were, you can say, pragmatic about their environmental issues. They realized whether it's where, peop, where their members were living or where they were fishing. The air, the land, the water was getting polluted by where they, where their members were working. So they had to make, extend the tide. Um, but you know, we all think that the environmental issues started in 1970, 1971, or something like that. You shake your head. I know what you're going to say. So tell us, enlighten us about this environmental conservation groundswell that was happening before 1970.
0: The first, in in actually this brilliant document that Olga Madar, who ended up being in charge of this program for UAW, wrote to get a grant, she references a 1948 first-time testimony before a Senate committee, I think it was the Senate, talking about conservation and the environment. And so UAW has a history that goes back to 1948, and you have a, an orchestrated, thought-out, strategic program in place Starting with the clean water conference that happens in 1965 with the UAW and then moving into 1967 when Olga Madera is put in charge of this and going straight through into the 1970s, Madera says in this proposal, our workers know better than anybody else what this is like. They work in it. They live in the urban areas around the mills or in the company towns around the mills and the factories. And they want their families to be safe and they want their families to be healthy. And so you have that, but you also have something else going on, which is really interesting, which is the real beginnings of an understanding of climate change that happens with the production of the Keeling Curve in 1958 by David Keeling, and he's being paid by the Department of Defense to try to figure out what would happen if we had a limited nuclear war with Russia. And so they see this rise in carbon going into the air. That has an impact on heat and cold in the climate. It's just not true that it happened in the 70s, it was all coming together, it was all Really becoming apparent if we watch the signs and paid attention in the Mm -hmm. 1950s. And you have to give the unions credit. They were trying to get out in front of and strategically work with how they could make this better for the common good and also make this work for their members Mm -hmm. so that their members were not left out in the cold. As these changes that were going to happen
3: happen. Mm-hmm. I, now, the UAW and Steelworkers were very powerful unions, right? Um, I'm sure they had the ear of someone in the administra- any kind of administration or within Congress. Did they apply any kind of pressure to change policy, specifically with Kennedy and LBJ, especially when they had friends in the White House and Congress was kind of friendly? Do you, did you come across any kind of like things like uh, working together to raise awareness of environmental issues?
0: Yeah. Instead of, you know, pushing the Congress and the president, the president, the Congress was pushing them. <laughs> thank you for, you know, thank you for doing this. Thank you for your support. Thank you for all your help. Uh, the conference conference on, uh, I think it was Clean Water that they did with Gaylord Nelson. You have constant communication with Muskie, who's interested in all these issues. There is a forward written by, uh, by Walter Ruther to Johnson's beautiful uh, piece and, and his whole effort. So they were valued partners for these members that were prescient enough and courageous enough to be pushing for what we need uh, to really clean up our environment. And, of course, you know, when you're dealing with Lake Erie catching fire.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, those things going on. So, yeah, that brings up this. I got to throw this question out. I know it was on the list. But so what happened? What happened to this alignment with labor and environmental issues what happened in the 70s
0: you know i i really don't know for sure at this point i think we can say that deindustrialization was moving along that we had the oil embargo that we had all of these problems that were happening in the 70s stagflation that comes out as a part of this and workers become desperate workers become desperate and and i think that the national leadership did probably did not know what to do with this, right? You you save the members you have, which I think was the wrong way to go. On the other hand, I wasn't making that decision then. Easy for me to say now. <laughs> but the the steel mills for sure were gonna go down. They were outmoded. The by nineteen by the late nineteen fifties, that that game was over. Europe was gonna be the leading steel area in Japan. That was just gonna happen and the same was happening with Carr. And and so you had to think the way that a Ruther and a Madair and a Murray and those people were thinking. You had to think, well, what comes next and how do we get ahead of it and how do we make it work for us? And I didn't see that yet mm-hmm. happening with the national leadership. So I think You know, a whole bunch of bad
3: things. (laughs) Thanks for being with us. I appreciate it.
0: Thank you so much. This has been great
2: fun. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 2012. That was the day the Chicago Teachers Union walked off the job for the first time in 25 years. The historic week-long strike resonated nationwide among trade unionists and served to reinvigorate the labor movement. Certainly, higher wages and better benefits were among the teachers' demands. The city's mayor, Rahm Emanuel, had canceled the union's wage increase, laid off close to a thousand teachers, and went on the attack against seniority rights and working conditions. The strike enjoyed wide public support among parents and the public. Teachers emphasized broader educational problems they faced, namely the attacks fueled by corporate privatization. They wanted a return to more traditional forms of education rather than simply preparing students for endless rounds of testing. They wanted more art, music, and gym classes and they demanded stable funding for social support services for the most vulnerable at-risk students. Union teachers understood that the Board of Education was using standardized testing to get rid of teachers and schools in order to privatize education, all in the name of turning around failing schools and helping the kids. Though the contract was less than perfect, it showed the power working people have to hold the line against continued assaults on their standards of living, especially in the public sector the CTU was able to beat back attempts at merit pay and increased use of student test scores in teacher evaluation. They won first-time recall rights, supply reimbursements, and liberal arts classes. There were concessions, however, made on seniority rights, pay for laid-off teachers, and longer workdays. But the CTU demonstrated that strikes can win in a period of extended anti-union onslaughts. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin
1: That's it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe on your favorite podcast app, where you can also spread the word by liking and following us. Today's story came to us from Tales from the Reuther Library, a podcast focusing on stories on labor history, Detroit, and Wayne State University. You can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. That's Reuther spelled R-E-U-T-H-E-R. As always, thanks so much for listening. Let us know what you think by commenting or emailing us. Labor History Today is produced by the Metro Washington Council's Union City Radio and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening, keep making history, and see you next time.